0: Amen. Well, if you would grab your Bibles and go ahead and be turning with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be studying the text that I read earlier. And as you turn there, I want you to think about this statement. Who you are determines what you wear. Who you are determines what you wear. Now, I think this is very appropriate in light of Halloween, right? I, mean, I don't know how many of you were out rambling around Medford last Monday night, but my crew was out in West Medford, and we had a great time, and I've got more candy than I really need. Um, so if you come to our house, we'll probably send you away with some candy. Um, but you've got all of these kids that are just a, my daughter was Belle, from Beauty and the Beast, and my son was a bumblebee transformer, and my youngest son was a bull lobster. I um, mean, you can imagine the picture at Halloween. I want you to think about this. Who you are determines what you wear. Now, even though my daughter was dressed up as Belle, I mean, she's beautiful, but she's not Belle, and my son's not a bumblebee transformer. I mean, just because they dress up like these things doesn't make them these things. I've I've got another kind of picture I want you to think through today. You guys know I love football, so I'm just going to kind of leave this here for us to refer to today. You know, the the Patriots have a big game this afternoon with the New York Giants. Um, Now, now what do football players wear? You know, I've I've got a helmet up here. They've got a football. I've got a, a jersey, an old jersey. Um, they've got shoulder pads. They put all of these pads on. Um, now, if I were to put all of this on and show up at Gillette Stadium. Are they playing at home today? I think they're playing at home. At Gillette Stadium today. And I say, Coach Belichick, man, I'm, I'm ready to go. I mean, he's going to look at me and laugh, right? I mean, just because I go and I put the gear on doesn't make me a football player with the New England Patriots. Now, Tom Brady shows up. Now, on the other hand, Tom Brady shows up. Coach, I'm ready, but he doesn't have any of his gear on. What is the, what's the coach going to look at him and say? I mean, what's going on, Tom? I mean, you're a football player. Go get your clothes on. You guys see where I'm headed with this? Who you are determines what you wear. Football players wear certain clothes, and you recognize them. So, like, we, we recognize a lot of people by what they wear. So does anybody get the mail delivered at their place every day? And in many places, you can pick out who is the male man or male woman by what they're wearing, Um, or a a T driver of one of the buses. I mean, they've got the look, they've got the clothes that match what they do. Now, as we kind of jump over here to our analogy today, in Colossians 3.12, Paul's going to say, clothe yourselves. Put on certain things. The idea is imagery. We we looked at last week where Tanner was talking about putting off and taking certain clothes off. We're going to look at this week, the putting on. But I want you to think through this with me a little bit. If you're here today and you have no relationship with Jesus Christ, you you don't really know, man, what what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a follower of him, a Christian? If you just take these qualities I'm about to tell you, like humility and gentleness and put them on does that make you now a Christian and I'm gonna say no I was like there's no difference in that than in me putting the football gear on and showing up at Gillette Stadium and that making me a football player but I want you to think about this let's say you are a follower of Christ shouldn't you be recognized by wearing certain things, just like Tom Brady, if he were to show up at the 415 kickoff this afternoon and he doesn't have any of his helmet or gear on, what's the coach going to do at him? Are you serious? Football players wear certain things in the same way followers of Christ put on certain clothes. So this is where we 're going today. I want you to see this that that putting on these clothes today is not going to make you a Christian. But we put on these things because this is who we are. Who you are determines what you wear. So let me do a quick review of last week. If you've got your Bibles there, I want you to look in, in Colossians 3. We're going to go back to verse 9 to, to kind of set, set the context before moving forward. So in Colossians 3.9, Paul says this, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have, um, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So here are a few truths that we looked at last week that I want to kind of review. The first one is this. Sanctification is the process of you being made Holy. Justification, on the other hand, is being declared righteous, being declared holy. Signification act is actually becoming in practice what God has already declared us to be true in the gospel. But what I want you to see is it's a process. So here in Colossians 3.10, you are being renewed. When you come, become a follower of Christ, let's say today you embrace Jesus by repentance and faith, you know what? You're not all of a sudden going to be the perfect Holy Christian, there's going to be a a lot of things that you're going to need to put off and then put on. It is a process, and this process will not be over until Christ returns. So this is important for us to understand. Hey, sanctification is a process. The second one is this, is that there's no sanctification in the Christian life apart from knowledge. It says there that you are being renewed in knowledge, Earlier in Colossians 3, Paul says, set your minds on things above. The process of sanctification, the role of the mind, is very crucial. What you set your mind on. It's our mind being renewed. We need to know certain things. So you become a follower of Christ and you start to learn, oh, believers, Christians don't do these things and they do these things. It's renewing your mind that then plays itself out in practice. The third thing is this, is that conformity to Christ is the ultimate goal. Do you hear the language in Colossians 3.10? You're being renewed in, the, in knowledge, in the image of your creator. Now, in the very beginning of Colossians 1.15, what does Paul say? Jesus is the image of the... Invisible God, the firstborn of creation, for by him all things were made. And so conformity to Christ, when Paul when Paul says here, you're being renewed in knowledge after the image of your creator, is that in the beginning, God created us in his image. But because of sin, Genesis 3, that image has been distorted by sin. And now through the gospel, that image is being renewed into the likeness of Christ. And so if you want to know What a follower of Christ is supposed to look like? Who do you look to? You look to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. And then the fourth truth, just reviewing here, is this. Sanctification involves both putting off and putting on. So we saw last week in Colossians 3, 5, put to death certain things. And then we see here in verse 12, put on. Now there's a tendency in the Christian life for us to focus on one or the other. But it's really a both and. It is a continual process of putting off and putting on. Putting off and putting on. This is the process of sanctification. And so here's the main truth. As we move forward to, to verse 12 and following, the main truth that I want you to see today is this. Make every effort to clothe yourselves with godliness. Make every effort. That is the the thrust of this text. So look in here at verse 12. We're going to walk through this. The first truth, and I've got two truths I want to share with you. The first one is this. Look at God's grace for motivation. Look at God's grace for motivation. Paul begins in verse 12. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. What is he doing here? He's reminding us of the gospel if for his chance we forgot. It would be, you know, it's easy. It's very tempting in the Christian life to get into very legalistic I man. I've just got to do these things and don't do these things. But it is not a legalistic earning God's favor. Christianity is a response to what God has done. And so he says, God has chosen you. He has He has sanctified, He's made you holy. You are loved. Therefore, be holy. Do you hear that? You are holy now be holy you are loved now be loved so when we walk through these things here it is a response I, I i don't i don't pursue humility and gentleness and kindness to earn god's favor i do it because i'm his child already i am a new person i am have put off the old self and i have put on the new self i, I can i get this sense here that Paul's saying, do you realize who you are? Like, people, wake up. You are elect. You are holy. You are loved. Do you get that? You are a new creature. You're a new person, and you wear certain clothes because of your identity in Christ. Because what Christ has done for you, you now wear different clothes. So what we see here is that God takes this initiative that we are set apart and that we are far more loved than we could ever imagine. It reminds me of of Deuteronomy. I've got a passage here I want you to see. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, this is how God describes his love for his people. He says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more a number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments for a thousand generations. He tells Israel, it's not because you were the most in number that I chose you. In actuality, you are the fewest. And you know what this reminds us here as we reflect on God being one of God's chosen ones? God did not save us because we had a ton to offer for the kingdom. He did not save us because we were the best of the best. You know what? God saved us, and and we're we're the scum of the earth. We are filthy. We are sinners. And in many cases, Paul says, man, God chose the weak to shame the strong. So this reminds us of the grace of God. Let's not forget that. Why are we going to put on holiness? It's because God has pursued us in the gospel look at God's grace and let that be a motivation for obedience in your life. So what's our response now? The s- response in light of this is man put off, strip off the old self and put on holiness, change your clothes. And so that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time doing. So the second truth that we're do- really going to slow down and hammer is this is that clothe yourselves with godliness and what we see here in Colossians three twelve and following are a number of different qualities that he highlights that a follower of Christ is supposed to pursue and you know a lot of times we throw these out there without even thinking what they mean and so we're actually going to slow down today we're going to slow down and say what does it mean to be compassionate or to be patient um, and, and we're going to walk through these one by one but before we start walking through those I want you to think about this Will you give the same level of thought to putting on spiritual clothes that you gave this morning and getting ready to come to church? Now, ladies, I'm just going to use you as an example. My wife has already warned me, so I know I'm treading on on, on, on holy ground here. What did the process look for you this morning on figuring out how to clothe yourself for coming to church I mean it, it may have started like this okay what shirt am I going to wear what undershirt am I going to wear am I going to put a shawl on um, pants or skirt or dress or a shirt dress I mean you could just combine those I think that's, that's like the new thing now you just call it a shirt dress maybe throw some leggings with it and then you start to thinking about okay do I need a belt some shoes are they going to be open-toed, closed-toed? Oh no, my my toenails. Do I need to paint my toenails? Um, or heel, no heel, stiletto, flat? I mean, all these things. You're like you're putting all this thought to into what are you going to wear today? Then you go to the necklace. You've got the earrings, you the bracelet, the rings, and then that reminds you of your fingernails that probably needs to be repainted. Um, The headband, the hat. We haven't even got to makeup yet. I mean, and then what about the purse, the multiple purse options that you could go through? Um, Please don't hate me for this. My point, do you see the point? We spend many, many minutes often having a game plan on clothing ourselves. Do you do the same thing in your relationship with Christ? Do you think, will you devote that much effort? Now, guys, I know we've got to struggle with this analogy here. Try to jump in the mind there for a second. But you see the effort. Maybe I could talk about the effort of Tom Brady, who's getting himself dressed for the game this afternoon. That's not a simple thing, and you're, you're putting everything. You've got to make sure you're mobile and everything works, right? That could be, that's the guy analogy. Just look to Tom Brady, right? But will you make every effort? If God were to come down and say, and to kind of evaluate your effort, what would that reveal? Now, let's acknowledge this. I can't make myself grow. But you know what I can't? Who makes me grow? God does. God has the growth. But you know what I can do? I can plant. I can sow. I can cultivate the soul, And I can do everything using the means of grace and begging God to produce holiness in me. Do we pursue that kind of effort in pursuing godliness? So, I mean, here's what Paul is doing. He he is painting a picture here. He's portraying this as a beautiful, glorious, floor-length garment that envelops the believer. And he's saying, deck yourself out in this. You want to get decked out? Deck yourself out in gentleness, humility, patience. Deck yourself out. That is glorious. This is what we are to put on. So let's start walking through these. The first one that he mentions here in verse 12 is compassionate hearts. Now here's what I want to do as we go through these. These are to be an image of our creator. So what I want to see as we go through these is, how does this reflect Christ? And how does that then set the example for us to live? So, compassionate hearts. Let's reflect here in Matthew chapter 9. Look at what it says here about Jesus. Says, and Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd then he said to his disciples the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few therefore pray earnestly to the lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest we look at jesus and we see a man the god man who overflowed with compassion for people what about you as you look into the depths of your heart, do you see sympathy for others? Is there compassion for the sick, the injured, the elderly? What about the millions in greater Boston? If you were to stand up on the top of the Peru and just kind of look out over greater Boston, would you have compassion for the people? Would it lead you to pray prayers like this? Lord, look at all of the people. The harvest is great, but there are so few workers. Compassion leads to action. It leads to praying certain prayers. It leads to seeking to meet the needs of people. Are you indifferent to these realities? So let me give you a practical application. You're sitting here and you're evaluating, hey man, I'm not very compassionate. Where do I start? Start on your knees crying out to God, I want to put this on. Meditate on the scriptures, but start with this. Start with your sphere of influence. Your home, your family, your neighbors, those you work with, your friends. Are you compassionate? Are there any needs there that God might lead you and stir your heart to meet? And then pray for them and go do them. Jesus had compassion. Where to have compassion. He continues on. The second one that he lists is kindness. Now let me highlight a few scriptures here highlighting the kindness of God. Look here at Romans. I believe it was our first one. Romans 2, 3, and 4. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Christ, let me tell you this. This right here tells you that God is being very kind with you. What do we mean by that? That he's being kind? Well, let me ask you this. Does God have every right when we rebel against him and sin against him to punish us? He does. He's a holy God. We could go back to the times of Noah, right? And in Noah's days, he said, everybody was wicked and evil except for Noah who was righteous. And he wiped out the whole earth with a flood. And why hasn't he done that with us? You know why? Because he is being kind, forbearing, and patient. So you may, you may be here today and say, man, I haven't really experienced God or his presence. I mean, here's what the, the scriptures say to you. He's been kind to you. He's being patient with you. And what is the goal there? Is that it would lead you to repentance. That you would see, I have sinned against the holy God. He has not destroyed me. And you would come and draw near to him. That's what this next verse says in Titus. Verse chapter 3, it says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. You're a believer today. Your salvation is due to the goodness and loving kindness of God. God is good, and He is kind. And you know what? He's even kind to those who don't deserve it last one I want to see here is in Luke 6. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. You know what? It's easy to be kind to people who love you, right? Do you have kindness to those who don't deserve it? Who are the people at work that come to mind that you have the hardest time being kind to? You know what Paul says? Put on kindness. God shows kindness to all men, and he does it without distinction. We should too. Now let's just think for a second. Why aren't we kind? You know why? But we're too concerned about our responsibilities, our problems, our plans. And what you're going to see in these qualities is that many of them go hand in hand. So like if you're going to be kind, sometimes that means you have to be very patient with people and that it's going to involve compassion as well. So it's a lot of these go hand in hand in putting these on. We should be kind and good because God is. Let's go on the third one he lists here is humility. It doesn't take much to think about the humility of Christ. I mean, think about it. He was born in the humblest of circumstances. Um, He was gentle and humble in heart. He says in Mark 10.45, I came not to be served, but to serve. He washed the disciples' feet. He taught that he who humbles himself will be exalted, but he who exalts himself will be humbled. And this is what it says in Philippians 2. It says that him being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We see this clearly in the cross. Did Jesus deserve the cross? No. He humbled himself. The people that know you best, If you were to ask them this question, would you describe me as a humble person or would you describe me as pretty prideful? What would they say? Now, I love what Isaiah 62 says here. I think it gives us a great framework here um, for thinking through this. God says, this is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let me just help you out with this. If you are going to have humility in your relationships, you know who you must first be humble with? God. If you you don't have a, a humility towards God, you will not have a humility towards your neighbor. And so that's what we first must develop. But we also must develop this, a humility toward the Word of God. Let me ask you this. When you come to read the Scriptures... Do you come to them humbly saying, Teach me, be my judge of the character and conduct of my life? Or do you come here, do you come to the scripture saying, Well, no, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. That wasn't meant for me. Is there a humility that describes even your approach to the text? Those who tremble at my word. Would God, would this be described of you? Would you be, the, would God say, man, that, that person, they tremble. It means when they, what does it mean to tremble at his word? Is that when they come to the word of God, that they're in such a humble state that they read and they obey. They hear it as the word of God, as it is. Or do you come saying, well, I've got everything figured out. And God really doesn't know what he's talking about. You know What? We don't always say that, but in a lot of our actions, that's what it reveals. When we choose to disobey God, many times we're saying, God, you're a liar. This is better. No, this will satisfy me. God, I know you say not to do it, but this will satisfy me. I know. In many of our actions, do we display pride and arrogance to the word of God? Man, let's cultivate a humility where God's word has its way In our life, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. But you know what else? Humility leads to humility. Reminds us that our own gifts and abilities we're not to be prideful about, because everything we have, God has given us. So even where God has gifted us, is to say, you know what? It's not me. These are the gifts of God in my life. This is the grace of God in my life. There's even a way to to go about life and and honoring and making much of him and his grace. Do you do that? You know what humility also does? It leads us to serve others. So probably compassion, kindness, and humility go together. Compassionate towards somebody that makes you want to be kind and serve. Does this describe you? Put it on. Deck yourself out in humility. That's what I want to tell you today. Go deck yourself out. The next one, the fourth one he shares with us, is gentleness and meekness. You all know who Bobby Knight is? Boisterous basketball coach. Uh, is, he used to be at Texas Tech. Huh? Is he still there? He's not there anymore. He, he said this about gentleness. He said, the meek may inherit the earth, but they rarely get rebounds. Now, I believe his statement there reveals a lot about what many people believe about gentleness. I mean, what's, what's he thinking? Hey, the meek, the gentle, they may in here, they're, but, but they're not going to be a rebound. To get a rebound, you've got to be aggressive. You've got to go fight for it. Can you be gentle and go, no, because gentleness is weakness. It's laziness. Is that what gentleness is? Well, let's look at Matthew 9 and you tell Matthew 11 and you tell me it says this Jesus says take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for yourselves Jesus says he was gentle Now I know a Jesus that had compassion on the crowds and who would heal the weak but I also know a Jesus who would go into the temple And he would raise a ruckus there because of of what they were doing to blaspheme the name of God. So what is gentleness? It is power under control. Gentleness is not weakness. It's a willingness to suffer injury instead of inflict it. When you are gentle with somebody, you handle it with care. So let me ask you this. Do you appear rigid, unyielding, and inflexible with others? Are you dogmatic and opinionated? Are you blunt and abrupt? Do people feel at ease in your presence? These might be some things for us to just think through in terms of, am I gentle? There is a way to go about the same thing, but to do it with gentleness or to do it with harshness. Gentleness under power under control. What about this? Do you ever reflect that to not be gentle is a sin? Or What about this? How many people have you ever prayed for? Or how many people have you ever heard pray, God, just make me more gentle? Do you pray for for compassion? Do you pray for gentleness? Because I would say naturally, you know what, is that we don't want to be gentle, we want to be harsh. Put on gentleness. Let's continue on. The fifth one he shares with us in Colossians 3. I'm going to read this for us. It says in verse, the end of verse 12, it says, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. I'm going to combine bearing and forgiveness with patience here. So patience. Patience. We've already seen this a little bit, right? But let me just show you another one. Exodus 34. I love this. One of my favorite passages. When, when the Lord reveals his glory to Moses, he says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We would do well to hear this and let it have its way in our lives. Are you slow to anger with people? Now, in light of this, let's just reflect back real quick. Go back to Colossians 3, verse 8. What does Paul say? But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So here's the picture. Put off anger and put on patience. Put off malice and put on compassion and kindness. One of the best ways to develop patience in your life is to reflect much on the character of God. He is so patient with us. In our initial salvation, as we read in Romans 2, for those of you today that have not repented and believed in your sins, He is being patient with you. That we should be patient. So patience reminds us, you know, where do we lose patience? We talk about losing patience. We could just say, where do we get angry or wrathful? It's circumstances and people, right? So you're driving your car and you lose your patience or you may say, a long day, moms, a long day at home with three or four kids, I've lost my patience. <laughs> I can't take it anymore. People, circumstances. What's, what's at the root of much impatience? Pride. You see that? You're driving the car, and why does it? why are you not patient? I've got a plan, and I've got a certain time I need to be there by, and you're getting in the way of me. It's all about me. And so if we're gonna learn patience, you know what we also probably need to learn? Humility. And 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 dying to ourselves. Deck yourself out in patience. <laughs> Let, what, what if we were known as a church, man? Redemption Hill, they, man, they're decked out in compassion and humility and patience and kindness. I mean, this is what we want to be. We want the community to know. I mean, Redemption Hill, you meet one of them, let me just tell you, this is what they're going to be known for. They wear certain clothes. They look like Christ. So patience. We also need patience with God. I want you to think about this. I love this quote by Jerry Bridges. And A little side note. If you want to read and study more on this, I'll recommend two books, The Pursuit of Holiness and The Pursuit of Godliness by Jerry Bridges. Two very informative books in my life growing up. Um, He worked with, um, I think, the Navigators for a long time in our discipleship resources. Take them. Those are great. But he says this, Every day God patiently bears with us, and every day we are tempted to become impatient with our friends, neighbors, and loved ones and our faults and failures before God are so much more serious than the petty actions of others that tend to irritate us. And you know what? God is patient. So we need to be patient with others. We also need to be patient in waiting for God. We pray to God, and we ask for things, and he teaches us patience. One of the ways I, I was thinking about on the way over today that, that I could teach you all patience, and I shared this with Leo, I was like, well, if I preach like an hour and a half sermon today, that would be a great tool and a means of grace to say, hey, I'm gonna, we're going to teach patience today, and we're going to teach our, our children's workers patience because they're going to double their time today, and, and we're just going to just pray for God to come in and produce patience in us. But then she said, if I did that, that she would not be very kind to me at home today. No. <laughs> just kidding with you. It also means that we're patient in suffering, Right? patience with others, but patient, maybe you're going through some type of suffering or persecution. This reminds us to be patient, to trust ourselves to God. And this idea of forbearance, bearing with one another. You know what our tendency when people um, hurt us? It's to what? To hurt back, right? But you know what Paul says in Romans? Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Good. Do not don't return with evil because he says this the Lord will repay. The Lord is the ultimate judge. I'm not God, it's it's learning that hey, man, if somebody does something against me, man, I can forgive because I know ultimately that God is in control. And even though this whole world maybe it may go unnoticed, God sees everything. And so the more you understand the justice of God, the more you come to understand and you're you're able to to forgive one another i want to give you five five truths about what forgiveness is here and i want to just highlight this in the text paul says forgive why because the lord forgave you Do you see the gospel what god is is the motivator for where to forgive here's one what forgiveness is deciding to live with the consequences of another sin that's forgiving when i forgive somebody i'm deciding there may be consequences and i'm going to live with it the second one is this it's forgiving is promising not to bring the sin up to the offender to others or to yourself here's what we like to do we like to forgive and then we'll bring it up a couple years later marriages husband wives does this bring something to mind there this is, I mean, this is relationships. We, it's like we always want to kind of tuck it away in our arsenal. Now let me just say this, you'll never forget. A lot of times we talk about forgive and forget. You, can, the, the, you cannot forget. And is, I mean, our memory, we can't force things to go out of our memory. But what do we mean by that? We mean that I'm not going to bring it back up and use it against you. Man, in our relationships, we must practice this. Here's another one here. Forgiveness means, forgiving means you resolve to revoke revenge. You're saying, hey, I'm not, I'm not coming back. I'm not coming after you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do good. Here's another one. Um, forgiving means you're determined to do good to them rather than evil. And then finally, I think we've got one more. True forgiveness pursues relationship and restoration. You know what forgiveness isn't? It's, it's not just to give up on the relationships. I'm just saying, man, okay, I'm just going to keep my distance. No, you know what forgiveness is? You go and you pursue that person. That may, may, what does that involve? It means humility. It means confessing sin. But it pursues relationship. Let us be about this. If Redemption Hill is going to have a community of people that live the way God wants them to live, this must, we must forgive. We must be patient. We must forbear with one another. He continues on. And he says here in, in Colossians 3, verse 14, And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Why is love supreme? I mean, when we think of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians 5, 22. The fruit of the Spirit is, what's the very first one? Love. Love is at the very beginning there. We think, hey, Jesus, what are the greatest commandments? Love God, love your neighbor. Those are the two greatest commandments. We think of 1 Corinthians 13. If you've got knowledge and prophecy and tongues, but if you do not have love, nothing. And he continues on, love is patient, love is kind. Here's what love is. Love is like the belt that binds all of these things together. It's not so much a character trait as it is an inner disposition of the soul that produces them all. So why am I going to have compassion on my neighbor? Because... I love them. Why am I going to be patient? It's because of love. Why am I going to do kind? It's because of love. And again, God is the picture. Look here at 1 John. 1 John 4 10 11 says this And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Did God love us when we were his friends? no you know what Romans says Romans says but God demonstrates his love for us while we were still sinners Christ died for us God loved people who were unlovable and we are to do the same it's easy to love those that love you what about this do you put on love even with those who do not deserve your love what does love cost you Because love usually costs something. God gave his son. Jesus laid down his life. What does love cost you? Let's continue on. The next one he takes us to here is um, verse 15, peace. And let the peace of Christ ruin your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Obviously, we see here peace with God, God took the initiative with us and has made peace with us through Christ. So we were enemies and now we are at peace through a relationship with Christ. Now, I know we're reading these for the most part in a very individualistic sense, but when Paul's writing this, he's writing to the church at Colossae. And he's like, y'all, you all, you know, just put that. That's what he's saying. You all As a community, put on humility and kindness and patience and peace. So he's not necessarily talking about individual peace with God, even though that may be a component of it. He's talking about corporate peace as a community. And so even as we come together and make decisions of Redemption Hill Church, he's saying this. I mean, for the sake of peace, would you be willing to overlook a wrong that somebody made? Let the peace of Christ rule. What he's describing here is an umpire. It's the picture, um, the word rule there, let the peace of Christ rule. It's that of an umpire in athletic games who directed the competition and they determined the decisions. So the peace is gonna be an umpire among us and it's gonna rule. And we are gonna pursue peace. Deck yourself out in peace. Are you a person of peace? Do you pursue peace with others? Or what's the opposite? Wrath, malice, obscene language, lying. What he described in Colossians 3.8. No, put those off. Pursue peace. In the things, in the, what you talk, things you say, what you say about others. Are you gossiping? That's not pursuing peace. Are you edifying, uplifting? Let's pursue peace. And then thankfulness. This has been a continual theme throughout Colossians already. We could go back to Colossians two. Verses 6 and 7, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. When Paul prays, he prays with thanksgiving in his heart for them. What does thanksgiving do? It recognizes that God has provided and cares for us. Thanksgiving recognizes that we're totally dependent upon him. Do you overflow? Do you abound with thanksgiving? And you know what thanksgiving will also promote? Content, contentment. When you give thanks, you're content with life. When you don't give thanks, what are you doing? You're grumbling, right? So if we can develop an attitude of thanksgiving, it will promote contentment in every area of our life. You know what? We pray for God's intervention in our lives, and when he provides, you know what we usually do? we congratulate ourselves instead of giving thanks to God. So when you pray for things, make sure you give thanks to God. It's not you. It is the grace of God. Last two things I want us to look at here. We're going to look at 16 and 17 and wrap up. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Do you treasure the word of Christ? What is he referring to, the word of Christ here? Um, he's basically the, the, the truth about Christ, namely, all the truth that's been revealed about him in the Scriptures. If you were to look at Ephesians 5, it's identical with being filled in the Spirit. So in Ephesians five eighteen, it says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be... Filled with the Spirit, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns. Here, instead of saying, be filled with the Spirit, he just says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. So you've got the Spirit and the Word. That shouldn't surprise us, right? Because the Spirit is what guided men as they wrote the Scriptures. The Spirit and and, and the Word go hand in hand. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And so, very similar there. Let the Word of Christ dwell. The idea of dwelling is let it be at home. Let let the word of God, let the truth of scripture be at home. Let it take up residence in your life. Read the word, pray the word, hear the word, respond to the word. And as you treasure up the word, one of the primary means of the word is the way you kill sin. So how do you put to death sin? You take up the word, you treasure it, and you believe it. And you kill sin with the word, the way godly character is developed, the way your mind is renewed, this process of sanctification will not happen unless you take up the word of God. Think about this. The amount of time I spend either meditating on the word of God or by being influenced by the world will determine where I am in my pursuit of holiness. The amount of time that I take up meditating on the word of God or being influenced by by the world, will determine where I am in my pursuit of holiness. What describes your life? Does the word of God, is it dwelling in you richly? Now, not only in an individualistic sense, but in a communal sense. I mean, as a church... The Word of God should dwell in us. That's why on Sundays, we want to prioritize the Word of God. We have, have a scripture reading usually every Sunday. We want songs that reflect the Word of God. When we preach on Sundays, it's going to be right out of the Word of God because we believe that this ought to have the central place in the life of the church. When we pray, when we do corporate prayer, we want our prayers to be praying the Word of God. But he says here, teaching and admonishing with psalms and hymns spiritual songs. And what Paul is highlighting here is the role of even music and song in the church. Someone says he's saying the way that you're going to teach and admonish is through the songs. Now we know that there are other, other, other ways of teaching and admonishing through preaching and teaching, but he's connecting this here with our music. So in a world where in many churches you've got worship wars, which style of music are you going to have? What do we want to elevate? We want to elevate the word. The style is not as important as the content of the song. And so as we're evaluating what songs we're singing, man, it may sound great, but does it teach? Does it take us to the text? Does it elevate Christ? And so we try to do that. As Micah leads us in song each Sunday, man, he's looking over the words of of these songs, and we're reflecting over, man, how does this take us to the gospel, to Christ? And as these distinctions here, psalms, in the early church, they put many psalms to, to song and they would sing them. It's so like today we sing um, Psalm 136, the Lord's love endures forever. And hymns, some say Colossians 1, 15 through 20, may have been a hymn of the early church. They actually sung hymns, songs about Christ, and then spiritual songs. And we do this with thankfulness in our hearts. So it's not just singing. It's what's going on in the heart. Because you can sing orthodox songs and have deadness going on. Let it not be said of us that we honor God with our lips, but our hearts are far from Him. But that we always sing with thankfulness for what God has done. And then finally, Paul wraps up this whole text in Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do. So he's talking about putting on, and he doesn't hit up every area of life, but he says, man, whatever you do, in word, whether it's something you say or whether it's something that you do, you do it all in the name of Jesus. Similar to 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Let me ask you this. What would your life look like if it were actually the case that literally everything you did or said or thought or even dreamed, was in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you think about that? What would be different about your life? Because you know what? When it comes to God, there are no compartments of our life that God doesn't have access to. You know what we like to do? Okay, I've got my church on Sunday, but my boyfriend or girlfriend relationship, my work, my house, My hobbies? No. God's not getting access access to those. What does Paul say? Everything you do. This is a life of worship. Whether it's schoolwork, whether it's as mundane as eating and drinking, we are to do everything to the glory of God. So I'll close us with this thought. Will you give the same level of thought that you did putting on close for church this morning will you give that same level of thought to putting on godliness and holiness in your life now for some of you guys you probably didn't give much thought you may have just rolled out of bed and threw what was the nearest to you but the idea is that man that we really meditate and think on putting on Christ because who you are determines what you wear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, there's much before us today as we look at this text. I mean, God, we acknowledge that much of this goes against everything that sin in the world tells us. So God, we need your spirit. We need you to come and have your way. We need your word to dwell in us and your spirit to empower the word in our lives. God, would you help us to put off anger and and wrath and malice and to put on kindness and humility and patience? Would Redemption Hill Church be known for this? And Lord, I pray for the person that may not know you, that may not be in a saving relationship with you, that they would see today, man, nothing putting on would make them a Christian, but that they need to be changed on the inside so that they would hear what Christ has done, that they would respond in repentance and faith and trust you, and that you would make them know. I pray in Christ's name, amen.